I would invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scripture to Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. This evening, Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. And I would ask how you manage the ups and downs of life. How do you center yourself after you've been knocked off balance? How do you right the wrongs that are so common in our world? It's in his book, The Way of Righteousness in the Muck of Life, that Dale Ralph Davis tells the story of a a university student who lived in a boarding house And downstairs on the first floor lived an elderly, now an infirm, retired music teacher. And each morning the student would come down the stairs, open the old man's door, and ask, Well, what's the good news? The elderly man would pick up his tuning fork, tap it on the side of his wheelchair, and say, That's middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It will be middle C tomorrow. It will be middle C a thousand years from now. The elderly man would say, the tenor upstairs sings flat. The piano across the hall is out of tune, but my friend, that is middle C. Psalm 9 and 10 give us that note by which everything in life can be measured and centered. But more than just a note, Psalm 9 and 10 give us a full song to sing when life is off and out of tune. That note, middle, sing, middle C, that song to sing, is that God is king over all. Let me pray and we'll study these psalms together. Lord, we thank you for your wisdom, your sovereignty. Lord, we thank you for being our middle C. Then when we are disoriented and disillusioned, we can look to you as king And we can right ourselves. We can center ourselves. I thank you, Lord, for even what you're accomplishing in Seth and Crystal's life. And, Lord, as, as they pivot and as they regroup and as they recover from some sad disappointment and hurt, Lord, that they will look to you, their king, and know that you are in complete control I pray, God, that you give us insight now as we study these psalms. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This evening I'd like, to, I'd like to consider Psalm 9 and 10 together as one psalm or one song for these reasons, a few reasons. There are some praises and expressions that are unique in these two psalms. For example, chapter 9, verse 9, or Psalm 9, verse 9, Psalm 10, verse 18, it, it reads, in times of trouble... That phrase is only found two other places in all of the Psalter. Now, that doesn't demand that these two are a single psalm or even that these psalms are authored by the same man, but it does establish a common theme in times of trouble. Also, I would submit, it's unusual to end a psalm with Selah. Normally, Selah is written in the middle of a psalm and not at the end of the psalm. Of the, of the nearly 75 times that Selah is found in the Psalter, only three times is it found at the end of a psalm. You'll notice that Psalm 9 ends with Selah. Is that, in fact, the end of the psalm, or is that simply a break, a pause in the extended psalm? Furthermore, Psalm 10 
lacks a superscription. There's no title or a heading in the scripture text. When a psalm lacks a title or superscription, we can borrow from the title of the previous psalm and treat them as one, Psalm 9 and 10. Furthermore, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, has Psalm 9 and 10 as one psalm. The Latin Vulgate also combines these two psalms into one. And then finally, Psalm 9 and 10 together form a Hebrew acrostic. Half of the Hebrew alphabet in Psalm 9, half of it in Psalm 10. There, there are eight psalms in the Hebrew Psalter that form that acrostic or that alphabet. The most familiar, of course, is Psalm 119. For our English Bibles are, are formatted in such a way that each successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet is even titled there in Psalm 119. So having said all that, there are reasons to treat Psalm 9 and 10 together. There's also reasons to, to treat Psalm 9 and 10 apart. First, in the Hebrew tradition, they are divided into two psalms. Of course, that has followed into our English Bibles. That's a pretty compelling reason. For thousands of years now, they've been recognized as separate psalms and numbered as Psalm 9 and 10. Also, there is difference in the large general theme. Psalm 9, in Psalm 9, the sun is shining. In Psalm 10, the, the storm clouds have rolled in and there's, there's trouble. Psalm 9 is a psalm of praise. Psalm 10 is a psalm of lament. And so there's also reason to consider these psalms separately. However, in both cases, whether you consider them as a single psalm or two psalms, there is a constant there is a middle C, and that is the person and the presence of God. In the highs and the lows, on the sunny days or in the dark days, we can look to one who never changes, who is always the same. We can tune our lives to that middle C. Let's begin reading Psalm 9, verse number 1. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Number one in your notes, if you're following the outline I printed and left for you there in the foyer, praise for the works of God. Praise for the works of God. And if we were to stop reading at this point, we could fill the balance of the hour rehearsing the marvelous works of God. If we were to stop reading at this point, we could fill the balance of the hour in rejoicing in the names of God. I, I hope that we could do that. David continues to give detail to his praise of God in the following verses. Verse number three, Psalm 9, verse three. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. Notice the presence of God in verse 3. Notice that God is on his throne in verse 4. He is the king. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever, and you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. God has obliterated and vanquished the enemies, but the Lord shall endure forever, verse 7. He has prepared his throne for judgment. There it is again, throne. He is the king. He is on his throne rendering judgment as king. He shall judge, verse 8, the world in righteousness. He shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those 
who seek you. This is how the psalmist praises God for his, his works. Specifically in these ways, because God is king. There in verse 3, on the throne, judging in righteousness. Also in verse 7, he's prepared his throne for judgment because God is king, because God is judge. David is praising him for his works. And the person in the presence of God is not just middle C. It's the song that we can sing. Look at verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. God works in these verses when he hears and when he remembers the cry of his people. And when he acts in his authority as king and judges righteously on behalf of those who know him and seek him and trust him. That's all in verse 10. Who humbly cry to him. Verse number 12. Look, sometimes in life we get disoriented, we get disillusioned by the circumstances of life so that we are perhaps off-key. We're singing the wrong notes. Everything is flat. We need to retune our lives to middle C and sing the song of praise to the Lord. David's praise extends now in verse 13 to a prayer. His praise becomes a prayer in verse 13. Have mercy on me, O Lord. This is number two. Prayer for the woes of the afflicted. Prayer for the woes of the afflicted. There's there's praise for the works of God in verses 1 through 12. And now there's prayer for the woes of the afflicted. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praises. In the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in your salvation. What's happening here is David is saying, God, because of your past deliverance, I am calling on you for further and future mercy. And he reasons, David is reasoning, if God would preserve me from death, in verse 13, then I can continue to sing his praises in verse 14 is, is the logic that he uses. Verse 15, the nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid. Their own foot is caught. They became ensnared and trapped in their own device. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Selah. And the Selah here is calling us to, to pause here in the middle of the psalm to reflect, to think on these things for a moment. Think about God's reputation in verse 16. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. Many times we present God as a warm, fuzzy, Santa Claus figure that is love and benevolence and all of that may be true but God is also great and terrible Nehemiah chapter 1 God is king and God executes judgment righteously and so think about how God is known perhaps the world doesn't know God as that great and terrible God perhaps the world today doesn't know 
God by his judgments that he executes. And here David is praying for the, the woes of the afflicted. Verse 17, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Could you write in the margin a modern nation state like the United States of America? The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. I think ancient nations, modern nations. Verse 18, for the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. It calls us to pause and to think again. This may or may not be the the final conclusion of Psalm 9 if we treat them together. But, But at a minimum, we must pause and think about this. David's prayer is that the nations might know themselves to be but men in contrast to knowing that God is king and judge. You see, without striking that tuning fork, without striking that middle C, how can one know if they are off key? How can man know that man is but man without knowing that God is king and and judge? And so we center ourselves, we tune ourselves to the fact that God is king and God is judge. We are in fear, verse 20, because we are but men. Now, why the selah at the end of of Psalm 9? It's suggesting we pause before we keep going. For our purposes this evening, we're going to keep going and treat Psalm 9 and 10 together. Uh, In years past, I've, I've preached from Psalm 10 alone as a standalone psalm, but this evening together, at the end of Psalm 9, we're not going to close our Bibles and conclude, but we're going to think about these things Now, when we can't see the sun shining and we can't hear middle sea sounding, the storm clouds are rolling in, it appears that God is far away. Look at Psalm 10, verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? There's that phrase or that theme again. I I think of the, the famous familiar poem, you, you might have a copy of it even hanging in your home or perhaps in some place, footprints in the sand. One night I dreamed a dream. As I was walking along the beach with my Lord across the dark sky, flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one to the Lord. After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand. I noticed that at many times along the path of life, especially at the very lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprints. This really troubled me, and I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you would walk with me all the way. But I noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, there was only one set of footprints I don't understand why, when I needed you most, you would leave me. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like Psalm 10, verse number 1? Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Of course, you know how the poem concludes. 
he whispered, my precious child, I love you and would never leave you. Never, ever during your trials and and testings, when you saw only one set of footprints in the sand, it was then that I carried you. Okay? But God, in that moment of desperation and difficulty, I needed a king, I needed a judge to act on my behalf. Why? Because look at verse 2. Psalm 10, verse 2. The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. This very same theme of, of trapped or ensnared by their own devices. For the wicked boast of his heart's desires. He blesses the greedy, renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Does this sound like modern man? Does this sound like Western civilization? The very same phenomenon is described in Romans chapter 1. I'll never forget Pastor Doug McLaughlin used to describe the digression of depravity in Romans chapter 1 so eloquently. He said, first, there's an elimination of God. There's an abolition of truth, a deification of man, a justification of sin, a proliferation of death. Romans chapter 1. I'll repeat that for you. Brilliant. The elimination of God, the abolition of truth, the deification of man, the justification of sin, the proliferation of death. Romans 1 describes what is happening here in Psalm 10. In fact, Romans 1 verse 28 reflects the end of Psalm 10 verse 4. Look at the end of Psalm 10 verse 4. This is what Romans 1:28 says. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. God was in none of their thoughts. This describes contemporary secular society. We have removed God from our consciousness. This is atheism. This is secularism. This is our world today. And it appears, verse number 5, Psalm 10, verse 5, his ways are always prospering. Your judgments are, are far above, out of his sight. You see, he is not threatened by your judgments, by your authority as king, the wicked man. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He's not threatened. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. This is the same phenomenon that's described in Psalm 73 with Asaph, uh, who's lamenting the prosperity of the wicked. It, it describes the blind arrogance of the wicked. Verse 7, his mouth is full of cursings and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. I might make a comment here about the destruction of the wicked in verse number 7. It's not physical abuse or physical molestation. It's a verbal curse. The slanderous accusation of the tongue is where it begins here. Verse 8, he sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places, he murders the innocent, the defenseless. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor, the vulnerable. He catches the poor when he draws them into his net. He crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. Like a predator, like, like a, a lion waiting 
to pounce on his prey. I would offer you, number three, lament for the waiting of the wicked. Lament for the waiting of the wicked. The the wicked are poised to pounce. They are preparing to destroy, is the description. Verse 11, he has said in his heart, God has forgotten. This is what the wicked is saying in his heart. This is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. This is the wicked who's saying in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. He will never know the audacity of the wicked that's waiting. So there's, there's praise for the works of God early in Psalm 9. There's prayer for the woe of the afflicted in Psalm 9. Here now in these early verses of Psalm 10, there's lament for the waiting of the wicked. There's a, there's a lot of discussion today about geopolitical events that are converging and conspiring to reset the world as we know it. Are you familiar with this, the, the great resets? I would caution us against the sensationalism of conspiracy theories. However, at the same time, I have no doubt that evil things are being done behind the scenes, in the dark hallways of government, in the upper echelons of power to destroy what is good and right in this world. Satan has, from the beginning, trying to accomplish a great reset, you see. And it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't put us into a tailspin because we know this has to to occur for the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Folks, don't despair. Listen for the clarion sound of middle C. God is king. He is judge. Which brings us to number four, relief for the watching of the king. There's lament because of the waiting of the wicked. There is number four, relief for the watching of the king. Verse 12, arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. This is what the wicked thinks. God will not judge. God will not demand accountability. I will never have to answer to the sovereign of the universe. And one of the greatest deceptions of Satan is convincing evildoers that they will never be called to account, that somehow God doesn't know, that somehow God doesn't care or won't do anything about it. Verse 14, but you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. And twice here now, God's hand, verse 12, and then also verse 14, God's hand is named. Let me give you a quick theology on God's hand, the hand of God. The Bible says that the whole world is in God's hand. Isaiah 40, verse 12. The Lord God says he will stretch out his hand against the wicked and help his people. Jesus demonstrated his identity by showing the print of the nails in his hand. Christian assurance is guaranteed by no one being able to pluck us out of his father's hand. The Lord Jesus committed his spirit into his Father's hands, is sitting at the right hand of God. We understand the strength and the power of God's righteous right hand, the hand in which he conducts his providence, he provides protection, and he judges. 
There in the middle of verse 14, the, the helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. And here we go. This is the crescendo in the song that we're coming to. Verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. In verse 17 here, describing the desire of the humble heart in contrast to the wicked heathen heart. Let's look back to verse 3. For the wicked boast of their heart's desire. Verse 3, that's the wicked heart. Verse 6, he has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. Verse 11, he has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face, he will never see. Verse 13, why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. In contrast to the heart of the heathen is the heart of the humble. And it is with humility, the heart of the humble, that we submit to Yahweh. And we let him handle the situation as he sees fit. Whatever wrongs need to be righted and whatever evil deeds need to be abolished, we humbly trust that God will take care of it his way and in his time. And when you see something and you hear something that's not right, it's off. Trust that God, the king, the judge, will strike that middle C to prove what is off or what is wrong in his way, in his time. You will cause your ear to hear the end of verse 17. To do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed that the man of the earth may oppress no more. God hears middle C. He is middle C. And his ear will hear, and he will write that wrong. On the back of your notes, I've copied for you what Reformation theologian John Calvin has written, and I know it's an extended citation, but allow me to, to read. I think it summarizes what's happening here. David here complains in his own name, and in the name of all the godly, that fraud, extortion, cruelty, violence, and all kinds of injustice prevailed everywhere in the world, and that the cause which he assigns for this is that ungodly and wicked men, being intoxicated with their prosperity, have shaken off all fear of God, and they think they may do whatever they please with impunity. Does that sound familiar? Have you watched the news recently? Accordingly, he earnestly beseeches God to help him and to remedy his desperate calamities. In the close, he comforts himself and the rest of the faithful with the hope of obtaining deliverance in due time. This, is, this description represents, as in a mirror, a lively image of a widely corrupt and disorganized state of society. A widely corrupt and disorganized state of society. When, therefore, we see iniquity breaking out like a flood... That the strangeness of such a temptation may not shake the faith of the children of God and cause them to fall into despair. Let them learn to look into this mirror. It tends greatly to lighten grief, to consider that nothing befalls us at this day which the church of God has not experienced in days of old. Yea, rather, that we are just called to engage in the same conflicts with which David and the other holy patriarchs were exercised. Farther, the faithful are admonished to have recourse to God in such a confused state of things. This is the admonition tonight from Psalm 9 and 10. When things are off in your world, when things don't sound right in your world, 
have recourse to God in such a confused state of things. For unless they are convinced that it belongs to God to succor them, to draw them, to remedy such a state of matters, they will gain nothing by indulging in confused murmurings. You can rant and rave about current events. Have at it. In fact, I'll even join you for a time, right? But it accomplishes nothing in rending the air with their cries and their complaints. Folks, Psalm 9 and 10 end on the same note. It's middle C. The experience is different in each of the Psalms, but the truth is the same. God is king. He is judge. And if things sound off to you, it's because they are. But let him correct it. Let me pray. Lord, forgive us for our panic at the state of affairs in our world today. Lord, may we humbly seek you, know you, trust you, cry to you, wait upon you to right the wrongs. Lord, we're so grateful that you are king, that you are judge. This is your world. And though the wrong seems off so strong, you are the ruler yet. Amen.